This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Cheryl Hunter is a television writer and producer, as well as a survivor advocate. Her efforts have been seen on NBC, CNN, Dr. Oz, the TED Talk stage, and many more major media platforms. But her journey of sharing about her traumatic abduction and assaults did not begin immediately. On this episode of What Came Next, Listen to Cheryl share what propelled her to finally be open about her trauma and what compels her to continue to speak out on behalf of victims everywhere. My name is Cheryl Hunter. I, like so many people, overcame something in my past and decided this is the thing that I'm going to use to propel me forward. Today, I am an author, speaker, news commentator on television, and I am committed to helping people reframe their relationship to adversity. I think my loved ones would describe me as funny, ferociously loving, passionate, resilient, a lot of fervor, a lot of fire, I don't like to go halfway. I grew up in the Colorado Rockies on a horse ranch that was in the really remote rural part of Colorado, not the ski area part. From our ranch, as you looked around, there's virtually no signs of civilization. Across a big canyon, there was the remnants of a sawmill from 100 years ago. But other than that, virtually no signs of modern civilization. It could have been any point in history. As a kid, it was amazing. We adventured, rode horses. We could ride for hours and not see civilization. We were on the edge of a national forest. It was heaven. Yet as I got older and started to get into my teens, I thought, I'm missing out on life. I would read magazines or watch TV occasionally and think, there's this whole world going on out there that I know nothing about. I'd use allowance money to buy a magazine. As a young teenage girl, it would be a fashion magazine. And I would look at these places and think, I want to go there. I want to meet people and talk to them, people I'm not related to by blood. I would lie out in the meadow and read my magazines. I'd lie there looking at planes going overhead, the flyover zone. That's where I was. I thought, if I stare hard enough at those planes, 
I could get sucked up into them and I'd be the girl on the plane looking at the girl lying out here among the cows and horses on the ground, on the meadow. I wanted to be the girl in the plane, being the one on the adventure. So I decided when I was old enough, I was definitely going to do that. Somehow they say what you focus on expands. I rodeoed every weekend and did horse shows and gymkhanas and all this. And at one of those, somebody I was rodeoing with goes, hey, my dad and uncles and I have a company where we manufacture gates for rodeo arenas and horse stalls. Would you like to be a model for us? And I was like, sure. I got a job modeling. I got paid $10. It was this big, heavy iron gate, and they had to prop it up on cinder blocks and put hay in front of it so you couldn't see that the ad was like, so easy, even a girl can lift it or some dumb thing. I stood there and smiled and wore a cowboy hat. The day came when I was old enough to go out into the world, or at least in preparation to do that. I started thinking, how am I going to talk my parents into me leaving Colorado and going to the big city? And frankly, at the time, I didn't care what big city. I just wanted to go to a city. Someplace where they didn't just wear bootcut Wrangler jeans and every pair of shoes that a person wore didn't have cow patties. Reading the fashion magazines, I read this article about you could be a model. They talked about the height you needed to be. And I was on the boys' basketball team, which was probably more a function of that it was such a small town. But I started on the boys' basketball team. I was tall enough. There's no modeling in Rye, Colorado or Beulah, Colorado, or San Isabel, Colorado, or any of the cosmopolitan areas nearby where I lived. Hell, there's none in the whole state of Colorado. I'd have to go someplace else. And this, I thought, would be my bulletproof argument for my parents. I'm going to go model. Now, I didn't know how does one become a model. I was like, I just have to go, I guess, someplace where they need them. My best friend was talking about going to Europe, and I thought, perfect, they need models over there. I'm going to go. We planned this trip and got rail passes and the whole nine. We get to France, and this big man, he's got a camera around his neck. He says, hey, are you a model? I can make you one. And I was like, holy mackerel, am I a genius or what? I mean, all I have to do is get to France. They're just picking models off the street. And I'm like, yeah, I have experience. I held up a gate in a field. He said, I can make you a model. You just need to come with me and my friend over there. Now, my friend I went with was like, oh, hell no. But look, I planned this trip. I didn't just want to get to Europe. I wanted to get out in the world and do something with my life. Of course, she was going to say, no, she didn't have this mission. We're not all built the same. We all have different wishes. So she was like, hell no. One, because it was a stupid idea to go with them. Let's face it. But two, because she wasn't driven to make a new life for herself. I thought to myself, look, I'm a smart girl. This isn't maybe the smartest decision, but I'm going to figure it out. And if they're looking for models, I'm going to do it because this will allow me to stay here in the big city. I could make it. I know I could do more than a dang gate catalog. But as this guy was 
first talking to me and he was waving to people and they were waving back. It was like he knew people. In the absence of any other data, I thought, oh, people like him. He knows people. I'll go. And so I made a plan to meet them and I went. I was young. I was a teenager and I was very naive. My family had traveled some, but I'd never lived outside of this little tiny bubble. And I was very protected. I went to meet them and I don't know if we're going to shoot the photos or if they're going to introduce me to somebody or if there's going to be like magazines there. So I met him at this restaurant. It was kind of weird because it was in the daytime, but all the lights were off. It was a long, thin corridor restaurant. And it was open at one end to the outside. And so it was light there and then dark in the rest of the restaurant. And they asked me if I wanted a glass of wine. I didn't want a glass of wine. I drank before, but I no, we were going to shoot the photos. I want to be my best. So I said no. And he said something about, oh, don't be an uptight American or something. I go, oh, I want to be seen to be worldly. Boom. The next thing I know, I'm in a car. I'm in the front seat and the window's down. And my head's kind of hanging out the window. And we're going on these windy roads. I'm like, this isn't good. And then I'm out again. And we're parked at this house. And the guy with the camera, he's sitting out in the front of the house on a chair. And there's this little girl there. And she's like less than 10 years old. Beautiful. Just beautiful. She had eyes like I'd never seen before. And thick black lashes. I was staring at her transfixed. And she was touching me and touching my face. What I remember seeing is that she was sitting on the big man's lap and she was wearing short shorts and like a little bikini top. She was gyrating on this man in a really inappropriate way. And she was touching my face and touching his face. And like, it was all just wrong. And the next thing I know, I wake up, it's dark and I'm on a hard cement floor. I'm lying in water, and I don't know how long I've been there. I'm hearing this incessant noise, this rustling sound, and it's the sound of that thick construction site plastic they put over windows, and it's just rustling like the wind is blowing. They rape me, of course, repeatedly. They cut me. They were pouring water on me but in my mouth and not letting me breathe. He just kept kicking me in the head and burning and cutting and beating and trying to drown. Everywhere we are, I keep saying, are we going to take the photos? When are we going to shoot the pictures? Even like I'm lying on the cement floor, are we going to shoot the photos soon? This went on for days. There were these demons that would come on top of me and have their way with me. And my mom, when I was growing up, became a yoga teacher. She was inspired about spirituality. And when she learned yoga and was teaching that, she talked about, we are not our bodies. We are that which inhabits them. And talked about how some traditions talk that you could leave your body and Thank God my mom taught me that I can just leave my body. When I was a girl, grandma used to tell me this story. My grandmother had a burst appendix when she was a little girl. It was so bad 
They took her to the hospital and they thought she was going to die. The priest performed last rites over her body. And she said she left her body and she was floating up in the corner of the ceiling. Her parents were weeping over her. And she said, but I'm here, I'm right here, and it doesn't hurt anymore. And it felt so warm and wonderful. And I asked her, Grandma, did you go down the tunnel of light? My grandma said, oh, no, there was no tunnel. All I could see was Jesus. It was so, so bright. She says, I guess that would be a tunnel if it's dark everywhere but where the Lord is. But then he told me, Josephine, it's time for you to go back. You're not done yet. So I'd been reared on these stories that it's possible to leave your body. And I thought, okay, I'm not my body. I learned that from my mom. My grandma told me about that. I'm not this girl being ripped to shreds by these monsters. I'm something bigger, something else. Somehow this spark of light was inside the room where I was. It was just this dancing little shimmering spark of light that was falling on the wall. I stared at it with all my might and I said, I'm not the girl there on the ground. I'm that spark of light. And just like the girl lying on the ground at the ranch in Rye, if I stare hard enough at that spark of light, I'll be sucked into it and become that shimmering spark of light. So that's what I did. I just looked for the light that whole time, and that's how I survived, to become that light and leave my body. I did have to do quite a bit of somatic processing and EMDR itself and a lot of things to get myself back in my body. I've talked to law enforcement over the years, and they've all speculated on the same thing. These were traffickers, something went awry, they couldn't hand you off. For whatever reason, it's just time to go. They say, go clean yourself up. There's this pipe coming out of the wall. There was sandpaper all around. It was a construction site. I scrubbed until I bled to get the filth off of me. I realized at that point, that's never going away. Before I get back in the Mercedes and he's going to take me someplace, he decides to cut my hair. He chops my hair all off. I get in the car. We get to this strip of grass kind of open park area, and he just pushes me out. It's like this weird thing takes over me. The fight, flight, or freeze response, it was truly involuntary. He pushes me out. I've been traumatized, and I don't know which end is up. But I fall out of the car in this crumpled heap. I lie there and play dead. It makes no logical sense. And yet I just lie there on the ground. And before he drives off, he goes, darling, friggin' darling, right? I look back over my shoulder and he snaps photos. I'm lying there now playing dead until he drives away. And then I get up and literally run for my life. Back in the day, you couldn't just make a phone call to United States. You had to go to a bank or an Amex office. Like technology was not what it was. 
you had to pay for a phone call. They would place a phone call for you and put you in this little phone booth to talk to people. This place that I went to that they made the phone calls, it was just a bank of phones sitting along a wall, two, three feet in between the phone, just in public standing there. I had them dial my mom. It was the middle of the night and she goes, hello, hello. Little did I know at that point, she'd been trying to find me for days. Call it intuition, call it connectedness. My mom and I were just best friends. But she says, are you okay? Are you okay? And I said, I'm okay. I'm okay. Now, of course, she knew that meant I'm not. And in that moment, the guy with the camera, the ringleader, shows up there, stands right in front of me, leans on the wall and goes, who are you calling? I hung up the phone and said, no answer. He asked me if I want to go for a drink, like we're dating or some freaking thing. They have these telescoping doors where it's just like this huge wide door. And I said, sure, just one minute, I have to pee. I went outside and I ran so fast. My feet were kicking my butt behind me. And I was on this slippery street wearing these slippery shoes I bought to go there that had leather bottoms that I thought looked fancy. I get back to the little hotel where my friend and I were staying and I got up to the room. She starts screaming at me. I leaned on her with all my might. Look, if this guy followed me to the phone booth, I had waited for his car to be out of sight until I ran into town. He could follow me anywhere. I said, get your stuff, get anything you can. We're leaving. We're leaving here now. I left most of my stuff in that room and we ran to the train station and got on the train. Where are we going to get tickets? Where's the train going? It doesn't matter. We're going to just pretend we don't know what we're doing if somebody comes. We got on the train and we rode from France down to Italy. I ran for my life and that was that. Obviously, there was no sleeping. There was no doing anything. Life was now different. I was an innocent and life was good and the world was good and people were good before. Then the world broke and it no longer was. My friend and I were at that age where you just step over stuff. I am bruised. My hair looks like somebody took a machete to it. I am cut and bleeding and we never talked about it. We literally never talked about it. As we're on the train, she offered me a cigarette. Now we were both broke teenagers and cigarettes were expensive. I took it to mean that was her extending the olive branch. That was the extent of the interaction about it. Now, I was there in Europe and I was like, I'll be damned if I'm going to have gone through all that and not become a model. I have no idea how a person does that, but I'm going to figure it out. We ended up our trip in London. I was like, that's it. And I got a book and found agencies. I mean, my hair, I got it cut not quite so bad. And I went to all of them and they said no until the very last one said yes. That's it. I became a model. When you become a model, there is this kind of grass is always greener phenomenon. They always want to send you someplace else, the cooler place to be. I went to Italy, to Milan. I went to France. They're like, oh, you got to be in London. Oh, you should be in Spain or Germany or Japan. So I went to all these places. I was in Japan and the next phase of my journey happened. 
Thank you again to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode. The key to dinnertime success? Variety. HelloFresh keeps your taste buds on their toes with 40 chef-crafted recipes to select from every week. From family-friendly to fit and wholesome, you'll always find new and exciting recipes to try and love. Feel like there just isn't enough time in the day? With HelloFresh, all you need is 15 minutes and you'll be enjoying a tasty, delicious meal made in your own kitchen. Just look for their quick and easy dinner options, plus quick breakfasts and lunches too. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. My kiddos and I love to plan our meals ahead, and because HelloFresh makes things so easy, they also love to help me cook the meals. Our recent personal favorites were the one-pot organic beef and black bean chili and their chicken schnitzel. For an opportunity you just can't miss, go to HelloFresh.com 50WCN and use code 50WCN for 50% off plus free shipping. Yes, that's right. Just visit HelloFresh.com 50WCN and use code 50WCN for 50% off plus free shipping. There was no way I was going back to Rye, Colorado to rot away with no one to talk to. I had to stay. I couldn't be alone with my thoughts. I just had to be busy. I would read all the time and listen to music simultaneously, music with lyrics, because I just needed to have as much stimulation as possible so I didn't think. But also I thought, if I go back, my mother will read it all over me and there's no way she would ever let me go back into the world if I came back and that was happening. So I realized I could never tell anybody. I had no coping skills. I'd never dealt with anything hard. And I realized the way to deal with it is I was just gonna pretend it never happened. Never let silence happen. Never be alone with my own thoughts. I was in Japan when I wasn't actually on a shoot. I would sit alone in my agent's office and read. I kept myself at arm's length. I didn't want to become too close with any of the other girls. I just kept to myself and I would sit there. It was just the agents that worked there. And then the woman who founded the agency, her grandparents used to sit there. Culturally, they respect their grandparents they honor them. They bring them in to help make important decisions in their lives. Their elders, their parents, their grandparents, and the grandparents are ready to be consulted on any important decisions. Like, what a brilliant idea, right? They would sit there, and I didn't speak Japanese. They really barely spoke English. So we'd go through the formality of good morning or hello. That was about it. They'd let me sit there and read. They'd leave me alone. One day, I'm sitting there, and they had this wooden table in the conference room. It was kind of narrow. It was odd in a way, like narrow at one end, like the tree must have been. It was massive. It was polished and smooth, but they left the eyes of the wood in and the sort of damaged, ruined parts, if you would, rather than smoothing it out and just sanding it all down. They left the character of the wood there. And one day I was reading absentmindedly and tracing my fingers over this big hole in the wood. And the grandmother walks over and says something in Japanese. She says, oh, wabi-sabi. And I'm like, wasabi? 
the green paste you put on sushi. And she just chuckles and she goes, no, wabi-sabi, Japanese aesthetic. And the grandfather comes over and he says, oh, it's the most important of all the Japanese principles. Wabi-sabi, he says, states that the beauty of any object is a product of the flaws of the object. That something can only be seen to be beautiful to the exact extent that it contains flaws. So on this table, for example, they designed it with the flaws built in so that it could embody that much beauty. The beauty is the study in contrast between damaged and flaw and ruin with true beauty somehow. My mouth was literally agape. I didn't know what to say. It was blowing my mind. The reason I did not want to be alone with my thoughts is because I kept saying to myself, you're filthy, you're ruined, you're damaged, you're so stupid. How could you have ever put yourself in that situation? And if you ever tell anyone, if you ever breathe a word of this, they will know what a fool you are. And so as they talked about this wabi-sabi, hold up, could this apply to me? I thanked them for their explanation. I gathered all my stuff. I had to get out of there. I had to actually allow myself to think for a moment. I needed to be alone with my thoughts. And I walked. I walked as fast as I could. I went just all over the city and I thought, could this be? That's impossible. But could a whole country be wrong? He said this was the most important of all Japanese aesthetics, the most important of all Japanese principles. They can't all be wrong. And I'd walked so long, I realized I hadn't eaten all day. I stopped at this restaurant and the seating area was shared between a lot of different takeout fast food restaurants. I got my food. I went and sat down and realized I'd thought too much. I needed to just read again. I was sitting there at a little two-top. The little table immediately in front of me was empty. And then two tables away was a woman mirroring me. She was sitting at the far side of her table. She had a ton of bags and a ton of stuff with her. She was shouting, and it looked like she was shouting at me. It started out kind of quiet, and then I was like, wait, I gotta look up. She's screaming now completely directly at me, and everybody in the restaurant's looking at us. Now, I know Nihon is the Japanese word for Japan, but I don't know what else she's saying, and she's just screaming at me. This man at the table next to me leans in and he says, she asks why make war on Japan? I start to respond aloud myself and I go, what are you talking about? Me, how old do you think I am? My grandfather was in World War II, but he wasn't in Japan. What are you talking about? Do I look like I'm in the army? She's talking to herself, but to me, shouting in conversation with nobody, and I'm doing the same thing back. Then she opens this bag and takes out this cloth envelope, unfolds it ceremoniously, and she pulls out two little bitty photos, and they're black and white. One is a man and one is a woman, and she clasps them over her head, and now she's really shouting. Tears are running down her face, and her snot is coming out of her nose. She's spitting everywhere. And the man leans in to translate her again. Everybody in the restaurant is looking at us, and I'm like, I didn't kill your parents. I don't know who you think I am. 
and I'm looking at her and it hits me. Here is this woman gripped by a circumstance she would never have chosen for herself, subjected to trauma and having no idea how to cope, no idea how to face this new reality. She's hurt, bewildered, inequipped to deal with it and trying to make a sense of it. And I no longer saw a crazy person. I saw myself and I stopped talking and I bowed. That's the most beautiful tradition in Japan. They truly bow to one another. And I stopped and I bowed. She went silent. The restaurant went silent. People had been pointing and looking and staring. I looked up and I said, the only two words that made sense, wabi-sabi. I grabbed all my stuff and bowed to her one more time. She bowed back. I bowed to the people in the restaurant and they bowed back. That day I thought, oh, it's got to be too good to be true. Wabi-sabi, it's got to be too amazing to actually be possible. But what I didn't know at the time is that is the most important of principles, not just in Japan. That exemplifies life. It's not the polished, perfect parts of us that connect us deeply with each other and ourselves and our purpose. It's those flaws. It's everything that we've previously believed is wrong with ourselves. What I'm absolutely certain about is that wabi-sabi is real, and it does apply to each of us. What makes you magnificent is everything you've been trying to hide. You are magnificent, and what makes you magnificent is that. I continued modeling, and eventually, I had done quite well at it. I was the worldwide Coca-Cola girl. If you do well enough in modeling, you can move to New York. And so here I am, finally, back in the United States all these years later. And I'm figuring, okay, I'm going to age out soon. (laughs) You can't do this forever. What now? One of the things I had done to process through all of this, and I had not really let anybody ever see anything, but I had written plays and books. It was just how I processed through things. And I thought, God, this would be amazing. I'd love to do that. I moved out to California and I started writing plays. I wanted to write movies and you got to kind of fund all that yourself or sell one. I'm going to write plays to see if what I think is good lands for an audience and I'll use it as a testing ground. It went well and I got a couple of development deals with some of the studios and networks. I started writing more and sold original TV shows. That was my day job. I still had a lot to heal from. I'd been doing things to heal. At one point, I'd said to my mom, I am depressed. That was as far as I came to telling her anything. Now, my mom is one of those rare people on the planet who never dealt with depression. At the time, I wanted to die. I had so much hell between my ears. I realized I can't live with that screaming negativity. And she said, look, it's long been said that if you want to help yourself, help other people. So you could find people to help. I volunteered through Jewish Family Services. I started volunteering at old age homes. 
at the time, there were a lot of Holocaust survivors and war vets. I would just sit there and listen to them. And oh my, were they thrilled. I would do this literally every day. And at first they just wanted to talk. Then I realized, wait, I'm dealing with this insurmountable obstacle here. I don't know how to get past trauma. I'm not the first person to go through trauma. I'm going to find people who went through bona fide trauma, talk to them about it and interview them as it were. And there were so many Holocaust survivors. They loved having someone who would finally listen. And I loved not having to listen to my own thoughts. We were a match made in heaven. I could see that this person who had overcome, had lived a long, happy, productive life. I started asking them about their lives and what had worked and what hadn't. I wanted to codify a system that I could use. And then ideally, I thought I could give away to people. There were war vets and survivors of all kinds of things. I mean, the human condition, we're all survivors. I started getting so curious about them and what made them tick. I learned what works and what doesn't. And I applied it to myself and it worked so well. I started finding other people who had gone through trauma. I asked them if they wanted to beta test it. I'm like, I can't make any promises, but if you'd like to try this out, you're welcome to. And it worked beautifully with all the people with whom I tested it. Now, writing TV is my day job and I'm volunteering with the oldies. And I say that with love and affection, creating this overcome adversity framework. My mom, by the way, her day job was, she was a university professor. She had worked in school districts. She was passionate about education and getting everybody a great education so they could thrive in life. So she taught me how to turn my framework into something I could teach. I want to help people. And I'm thinking to myself, I could see the power of major media. I could see that major media had this ability to shape a collective conversation. And I thought, what would happen if it could shape a conversation for good? What would be possible? I tell you, it took me nearly a decade, Amy, more than a decade later. I hadn't told literally anybody. I had a therapist and I was talking about hypothetical, non-consensual sexual encounters, but never spoke it. Even after designing this framework and using it on myself, there was this remnant there. I took all the personal development seminars I could. And then all there was left to do was take the leadership program. And I go, well, I don't fancy myself a leader of these, but why not? I'll do it because it feels really great when I'm there. I was leading a seminar one night, almost 300 people in the room. We were doing an exercise on forgiveness. I had posited that we can forgive anything. Forgiveness is not about condoning what they've done, but rather about setting ourselves free. And this woman stood up and she was waving her hand and said she wasn't having any part of it. She's like, nope, 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 nope. Certain things are unforgivable. I have been through this. My children have been through this. Just the worst kinds of abuse. The room was siding with her and somebody stood up and slammed down their notebooks. This is bullshit. And people were storming out of the room. And I sat there. You know, you can have those conversations with yourself. It's a long, full conversation, but it happens in the flicker of an instant. And I said, you are no longer a child. You are no longer a teenager who doesn't know how she's going to deal with the conversation of why didn't you stay there and see justice served? And so for the first time in my life, I spoke 
and told my story in a seminar. In the seminar that night was his filmmaker. He's one of the people that told me about these personal development seminars in the first place, but he came up and said, look, I just shot this movie. It's called Discover the Gift. We are done. We are shooting some outside pickup shots. It's almost done. We are going live in two weeks. May I interview tomorrow? Would you tell your story? In the heat of the moment, I go, sure. I went home that night and spent most of the night up staring at the mirror going, are you going to open this Pandora's box? Are you going to own this now? There's no going back. And I said, absolutely. As a girl lying on the ground in Rye, Colorado, looking up at the plains, I dreamt of somehow helping people, but I couldn't imagine how I'd do that. It was like, am I gonna teach people how to ride horses? I have nothing else I could teach anybody. I prayed for some way to help people, some way to contribute, some way to have my life make a difference. And in this moment when he said, would you share your story? I thought, aha, maybe that's a way. So I did, and the movie debuted at this place, Agape, this spiritual center. And he's like, hey, you may want to invite your family and friends. So I reached out to my family and it was time to have the conversations with everybody. My mom said, I knew something had happened. And she cited the, I'm okay, I'm okay, phone call. She said, I knew when it was time you would tell me. My father and I became close when I told him then too. He said, I understand why you didn't tell me because I'd have wanted to kill the sons of bitches and maybe you just needed to be held. So the final piece I realized in the healing, it was all the things that the Holocaust survivors and war vets and all that I'd learned from these beautiful souls. But for me, the final piece in the healing journey became owning my voice and owning my story. I finally started sharing my story. I did TED Talks, I did Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, a lot of things like this, started commenting on news from the perspective of standing up for and advocating for survivors and the victims of violent crime. I wrote the book, Use It, Turn Setbacks into Success. I share both my story and then I share a large portion of the framework that I created to overcome adversity. I created the book so that people could help themselves, just have this workbook to be able to move through that. The first time I spoke on national news, I was on the Nancy Grace show. She was on CNN for years and CNN's headline news. And I went to the CNN building in Hollywood. I showed up there and they give me my name tag. I get on TV and they've got that, they call it a Chiron. When you're on TV, that lower third banner that has all the writing on it where it says your name and it read Cheryl Hunter victim. And I was like, what the hell? And I was like, uh, can we change that? And then the next time I went back to CNN, they called me back within a few days. And I'm like, I got to tell them about the victim thing. I show up and they've got victim there again. I'm like, uh, no, but they go, it's sorry. It's too late to change. It's a live show. So the next time they booked me, again, a few days later, I said, my title must be something different. I'm happy to contribute. Please call me something else. You could call me a survivor advocate. You could call me an author. You could call me a cowgirl. Just any damn thing but victim, because to me, it seems powerless. It's such a loaded word. 
I think part of the healing journey is to claim that victim status, is to say, this happened, claiming that voice, particularly when it hasn't been spoken or acknowledged, is being able to say, hey, this happened, and then be able to still move past it. There was an interview I did once where the woman who interviewed me was very warm and inviting at the beginning, and then kind of turned and said, come on, let's talk turkey here. At some point, did you realize this was a stupid decision to go with this man? She just kept going. She just kept prying. It was the equivalent of in a rape case where they go, what were you wearing? I right then dug my heels in and said, the victim is never to blame. Never. I am strong enough to go toe to toe with you and make sure that you and your viewers know to never blame the victim. But the other victims out there don't always have that ability, particularly if the victimization persists. I tell you, I felt so good. And I don't like to claim that name for myself. It just isn't where I choose to identify. But in that moment, it needed to be said. It's ever evolving, right? I have been blessed to speak at schools across the nation and in businesses and companies. Every time that I speak, invariably, I mean, truly without fail, every single time I speak, people come and line up afterward. Not to say, hey, wonderful, good job or anything, but what they come to share is, I've never told anyone. And they share their story. They claim their voice. They own themselves in that moment. And the ability to say, I survived this. I'm better for it. Or I'm no longer willing to be silent. Or I want to use this to help others. I found is a profound element of our own overcoming. People say when you're going through a hard time, hey, you're not alone. And you're like, dude, I'm so freaking alone right now. I can't even tell you. But hearing someone's experience and going, wait, that's me. I thought I was broken. I'm just like you. It makes us know, in fact, we aren't alone. Once I finally did get my message out to the world in a really large way, I realized there are entire industries dedicated to helping people overcome trauma. I'm not the only one or the best one at doing that. But what there isn't is a structure in place to help mission-driven individuals share their message and their story with the world. It took me a decade, and I wrote national network television for Pete's sakes. I pulled together some of the journalists, TV directors and producers and writers that I had built relationships with over the years and told them what my idea was. I want to empower mission-driven experts to get out there and share their messages with millions like I've done. And they were like, I love it. And so that's what I am blessed to do now is help people share their passion and their mission and their reason for being with the world. Part of overcoming adversity I believe, is owning your voice and owning your story. For many people, it's just being able to speak that into a safe space. And I don't mean trauma sharing or anything like that. I mean authentically being able to own what's occurred. For others, 
it's giving a voice to the voiceless. That is something that makes a difference for them. There's something about being able to claim, hey, this occurred and I'm no longer willing to be silent. That is profoundly cathartic. It's the wabi-sabi in it all. Absolutely. My website is CherylHunter.com. Facebook is Cheryl Hunter. I unfortunately did not get my name on Instagram. It's Hunter Cheryl. Same on Twitter. Thank you very much for such a candid conversation and all your thoughts. You are such a rich storyteller. No wonder that you have had such a robust career and you are such a warm speaker and you bring the listener right to wherever you are. Thank you for bringing that to what came next. Amy, I am truly honored. I feel there's a reason why the universe brings us together. God brings us together. And I'm so honored to know you. I'm sorry for everything you've been through. And thank you for the beautiful beacon that you have become for this world and the difference that you make. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I went and I told my school guidance counselor and they told me, we'll look into it. And I never heard anything about it again. That was only the first time that I had reported it over the next couple of months. Sometimes I would go down and talk to my school counselor several times a day. I didn't really know that I could call the police. I didn't know who I could talk to. Thank you again, HelloFresh, for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget to visit HelloFresh.com slash 50WCN and use code 50WCN for 50% off plus free shipping. Yes, you heard that right. Get 50% off your entire order plus free shipping by going to HelloFresh.com slash 50WCN and use code 50WCN. I cannot wait to hear what recipes you're cooking up. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.